You're listening to Women Heard, brought to you by New York Women in Communications. I'm your host, Julie hockheiser Ilkovich, and I'm here today talking to Stephanie Mehta, who is the CEO and Chief Content Officer at Mensuedo Ventures. Welcome, Stephanie. We are so, so excited and honored to have you on our show. Thank you so much, Julie. I'm happy to be here. And Stephanie is also a Matrix Award winner here in 2022, so we will be talking about that, but I want to start off by saying congratulations. How exciting. Um, we're so, so excited for you and very well deserved. Thank you so much, Julie, and I just want to thank everybody in the New York Wiki community and everybody involved in the Matrix Award. It's really humbling. Awesome. I'm, I'm so, so thrilled for you and so thrilled that we get to chat about it today along with everything else. Um, you know, we start our episodes usually with the same question, which is a conversation we are really trying to have with all different women in our industry. And that question is what you think the biggest challenge facing women is in the workplace today. It's hard to narrow it down to just one, Julie, <laughs> quite honestly. That was the thing that I struggled with with this question. I find myself thinking a lot about women having to make up ground as a result of the pandemic. Um, a lot of research has been done. McKinsey in particular has been um, very good about tracking the progress of women in the workplace. And their research that came out during the pandemic suggested that professional women had been set back by as much as six years as a result of the pandemic. I mean, that's almost half a generation. And when I think about all of the strides that the women who came before me made on my behalf, hopefully some of the strides mm -hmm. my generation is making for the generations behind us, um, to think that uh, a global health crisis, which I don't want to take anything away from the personal and professional struggles people went through during that period, but that workplaces weren't able to accommodate the changes and the struggles that people were going through such that we lost really great women in the workplace. A lot of those women will come back and they'll come back stronger than ever, but I do worry that many women have not just lost a step, but lost several steps. And so every challenge is an opportunity at a time when we are facing um, you know, interesting challenges in the labor market at a time when companies are trying to hire really good people, how do we take advantage of these displaced, really talented women leaders who have had to step back as a result of the global pandemic and find ways to accommodate them and, you know, really welcome them back with open arms and help them accelerate their, their career tracks? Absolutely. I mean, totally agree. And as you're speaking, I mean, what's stressing me out even more, not that there's anything we can do about it on this conversation, is just thinking about what changes like are being made. You know, now we've had two years to digest this. And like you're saying, I mean, there's so much we as women, as companies can do about hiring and but just thinking big picture and don't have the answer to this today, but like, you know, what, what are companies able to do moving forward to almost like make sure this doesn't, I would say, quote unquote, happen again, because obviously there were so many factors, but I think we learned a lot about childcare and support and flexibility. And I just hope that, you know, there's horrible, every, all the horrible things that so many people had to go through that we take away some lessons 
um, that that will help the future. So, um, you know, to, to be discussed many, many, many times on this podcast, but absolutely like that is the, the setback. It's it's terrifying. And like you're saying, all the hard work that women put in over the years, um, hopefully, hopefully we will we will get back there. Um, I I definitely want to hear all about your career and how you got to where you are today. I mean, you've had a fascinating career in journalism. You have worked at incredible brands, celebrated publications from Vanity Fair to the Wall Street Journal. Can you walk us through your career path? We love to share with our listeners, you know, how you got here. So from your education, any internships, what your big break was, anything you would be, you think would be helpful when someone's hearing like really how you got to where you are in this role today. Yeah, I'll, I'll try to, to do the abridged version because um, it's been a long and winding road. But I was an English major as an undergraduate and um, got a, we didn't have a minor program at my university, but I got a, a certificate in, in business institutions. So I was always interested in you know the left brain and the right brain and thought that after graduation, I would go into book publishing. That was something that really interested me. Um, you know, there's there's not many paths you can do go with an English degree. It was either that or law school. Um, but I attended a university that had an incredible journalism school, even though I was not interested in journalism when I arrived at, at Northwestern, um, but got sucked into writing for the college paper and, you know, was was bitten by the bug. And um, so did um, some internships during my um, college career at various local newspapers and again sort of thought that that would be the path for me that you know I would I would end up in in daily news journalism and um you know for me the really big break came um after I had uh, uh, been working at a local newspaper in, in Norfolk Virginia for a couple of years I was at the Virginian pilot as a business journalist which was such a great job because you know, it was a small staff, and um, this was back in the days when newspapers were still pretty vital. I, I had to write, you know, every six weeks, I had to run write the, the Sunday business cover story. And every five weeks, I had to write the Monday business cover story. So, you know, it was just part of the rotation of having to do sort of long-form journalism at a very early stage in my career when, quite honestly, I probably had no business doing it. <laughs> um and I was there for a couple of years, and as was kind of conventional at that time, every you know every couple of months I would send my clips out to various publications, and I would try to get a meeting with a recruiter and try to sort of figure out what my next step in my career would be. And um, I was lucky enough to secure a meeting at an American Association of um, the Asian American Journalists Association was having a convention, and job fair. And I met with a recruiter from the Wall Street Journal at that job fair. And, you know, I thought the journal was something that would be five or six or seven years down the road for me. I didn't think I would make the leap from this local newspaper to the journal. And this recruiter said to me, he said, your work is really good, but there's a, there, there, it's, it, it's better than 90% of what I see from a person your age. But that 10% is outstanding. And that's who you're competing against. You're competing against the top 10% of journalists in your cohort in the world. And if you want to work at 
the Wall Street Journal, which to me was like the pinnacle at that time, you know, that that's who you're competing against. You're going to have to be better than that 10%. And it was so eye-opening because it was very visual for me. Suddenly I was like, okay, this is a pyramid. And it was encouraging because I was, you know, I was definitely not at the bottom of the pyramid, but I was also not at the top. And it gave me something to aspire to. And it sort of lit a fire underneath my, underneath me. And I, I really, um, I went back from that convention to my little Atex computer in Norfolk, Virginia, and just like, just got really aggressive as, and, and started looking for stories in places I didn't look before. And, you know, putting in even more hours trying to find a way to distinguish myself professionally and in my writing. And um, I think a year later, I was at the journal. So amazing. It amazing. paid off. But I, that, that advice was so formative. And, you know, 25 years, I still remember it. Absolutely. I, I really, I, you know, one question that was kind of bubbling when you're talking about the start of your career is like, where journalism was, how different it was then, right? And so I was going to ask you, like, what is your advice to people now who want to succeed? But really, it's like probably the same advice, right? Just like diving in, being proactive, working hard, looking for the story, right? I mean, that's kind of probably has uh, spanned spanned the time of, of the shifting landscape of media. Yeah, and I think the only thing I would say on top of that, Julian, you've you got it all right, is also... I think in when I was coming up, we were limited by the medium. We could write for our newspaper and there were only so many inches you could get in a daily newspaper before it had to ship to the printer. Today, I would say, you know, early career aspiring young writers, you can write anywhere, anytime for any platform, you know, start a blog, start your own website. Um, you know, the thing to do is just write, to write, to write, to write, to write, and to publish in a format where other people can see it. So you can show people, here's the work that I've put out into the world, and you're not limited by the press run. You're not li limited by, you know, the layout can only accommodate this many words. You know, young writers today have so many opportunities to, to tell their stories. And so I would just encourage people to find whatever platform it is, even if it's self-publishing, to be able to work that muscle. That's great. Yeah. And that's, I mean, I love hearing that because I'm sure looking again at that landscape as someone who's graduating from school and as some of these, some of the publications may be shrinking or disappearing, like to know, to look at it from that positive spin is great in terms of, yeah, you do have the flexibility that didn't exist, did not exist before. So then what happened at during, after your time at the journal, and where did you go from there? Yeah, so I loved my time at the journal. I really learned how to become an incredibly diligent reporter. I learned how to be, I, 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 my values and ethics as a journalist were forged at, at the journal. Um, but I also was craving an opportunity to do more of that long form journalism that I got an opportunity to do, you know, in my, my first job. And you know, at the time, this was before the journal had the weekend journal, before they had WSJ, the magazine. You know, it was very much a traditional um, long, uh, newspaper, and you know, even the longest stories on the front page were never more than two thousand words. So, typically, 
so I, I was really craving an opportunity to, to stretch myself as a writer. And so I was able to uh, move over to Fortune magazine, took my same skill set. I was a tech writer. I moved it over to, to, to Fortune. And I was there for 14 years, um, started as a writer and worked my way up to um, deputy editor and, you know, had always, um, you know, enjoyed writing, um, found it to be, you know, incredibly rewarding. I loved the exercise. It was sort of like being in school because, you know, you go out, you ask questions, you learn a lot, and then you write a paper about it. So, you know, as, as somebody who, who loved school, it was sort of an extension <laughs> of that. But I also found that, um, you know, the, at, at magazines in particular, you know, editors had a lot it, it, it was very rewarding, I think, for the editors to be able to actually curate the content that was going to be in the magazine and to see the big picture and to see what, you know, on any given issue, like what's the mix of stories we want, what's the layout, what's the design. And, you know, and, and as an editor, I had the great privilege of getting to also help bring along the next generation of writers. So for me, moving into editing roles and moving into sort of management roles was just, I think, a, a natural evolution because it gave me a chance to see that big picture, but also to do something that I love doing and continue to love doing, which is sort of helping bring along bring along the, the next generation. Now, that's, that's fabulous. And hearing about that path, I mean, I think, um, especially when you're following the career path you did and making those transitions, like a lot of conversation I have with women is about like being a manager versus not being a manager and like what opportunities there are. So it's, it's great to hear about that. You know, that was a smooth transition that you felt like all the skills you had up to that point applied to kind of being a leader beyond that. Yeah. I mean, for me, there was this interesting inflection point where, you know, being a writer, especially at uh, at the time, it was a fortnightly magazine, so it came out every two weeks, um, and it had a fairly big staff. The, the writer lifestyle was great for me as a young parent because I could schedule interviews during the bulk of the day and then, you know, leave the office at 5.30 or 6 and get my train so I could get home to, to see my kids. When I was making the transition from writer to editor, I did wonder what that would mean for my work-life balance because I, I did see that, you know, the editors were the ones who had to be there until the very last, you know, page closed and was shipped off to the printers. And so it did give me a little pause about how I would be able to make that transition. But, you know, what became really eye-opening to me was that I could actually set my own hours as an editor, like right. I I, I think that I was clinging to, um, and I was letting sort of a, a, an old school model of what an editor needed to be shape some of my concerns about whether or not I could do the job. And um, when I was invited to move into an editing role by the then we call the managing editors, a top editor at at, at Fortune, Andy Serwer came into my office and asked if I would consider it. And this sort of work-life balance was, was looming in the back of my head. Um, the other thing was that I, I found myself wondering, you know, how would I feel if I turned this job down 
and someone and one of my peers took it. Um, how would I feel if they had the seat at the table that I had turned down? And it it made me it 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 made me realize I I wanted that seat, and it was up to me to navigate how I was going to be able to to do the work, but also, you know, be be present for the home life. Yeah, and I I love that. I mean, also just you probably I I mean I don't know not to speak to speak for you. So this is more of a question. Like who was doing that role, like, was it mostly men before in terms of who the editors was, were, or was it a mix of men and women? Just thinking about how that clearly had to be transformed from a, you know, a work-life balance perspective. Yeah, I mean, I think that there there were always women editors at Fortune, and, you know, famously, Carol Loomis, um, who, you know, was a senior writer and editor-at-large at Fortune for, you know, probably north of 50 years, you know, was such a trailblazer. Um, but a lot of the female editors were either young up-and-comers who were in sort of assistant roles, um, or they were sort of story editors. And so mm -hmm. they were the kinds of people who would sit down with a writer and help craft a story and help, you know, sort of, um, you know, line edit and shape it into place. The, at the time, the people with the real sort of power, if you will, at the organization were, were overwhelmingly male. Mm -hmm. um, you know, now, it, to give credit to, to that cohort, um, right around the time that I got promoted into editing roles, there was a, a big shift in the culture at, at Fortune that I had nothing to do with. There were several, um, several editors who themselves, you know, male editors who themselves had young kids, who, you know, one in particular, the deputy editor at the time, Hank Gilman, would walk around the office and tell people, hey, why, why don't you go home? Or, <laughs> you know, Andy, the, the 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 top editor, you know, would periodically let people know, my daughter's in a lacrosse game. I'm going to be checking it out. And, you know, I'm on my cell if you need me. But, you know, right. that kind of behavior gave people permission to know that they could, you know, have family lives and have personal lives and you know as long as the work got done um people were pretty accommodating so you know i i certainly can't claim any kind of credit for for a broader cultural change but i hope that in my own way i was sort of setting an example by letting the other sort of women in particular but even young parents in the office know that you know you can still have a big job but you can sort of write your own rules. Yeah, that's fabulous. That's a, that 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 is amazing. And what what year was that? Just thinking about the culture shift, like around what years? It was probably around 2006, 2007. Oh, wow. So that's very forward thinking. That's very forward thinking, I think, in terms of the, in terms of that shift. And then what brought you to this role? How did this, you know, how did how did you evolve into your current role? Yeah, so I um I had the opportunity to apply for the editor-in-chief role at Fast Company in um, the at the end of 2017. The um, previous editor left, and um, you know, I had been I had been a number two at a number of publications, but had never been the top editor, and kind of felt like if I was going to go for it, it was going to have to be now. Um, you know the. the long form magazine editor jobs were few and far between. <laughs> and um, the fast company editor job was, um, you know, I just sort of felt like it was, 
it was it it was it was the perfect job for me. Um, you know, I had spent most of my career in business journalism, and so I had a really good foundation. But um, had also done two years at Vanity Fair and really sort of understood magazine making. Had come to sort of see um, a little bit of the way that you work with. Um, with with, a, with sort of celebrity talent, which is something that, you know, we didn't do a lot of at Fortune or Bloomberg, but, you know, Fast Company sort of famously had always had a, a willingness to put, you know, celebrities on the cover. So I felt like I had sort of been building up to this opportunity. And, um, and so was the editor of Fast Company from 2018 to 2022. And then at the beginning of this year, um, you know, had the opportunity to become CEO of our parent company. So Fast Company and Inc. magazine are owned by um, Joe Mansueto, who's um, a private owner. And, um, you know, he and I had had talked a little bit over the years about the possibility of um, elevating me into the CEO role. You know, I, I had all, my my position was always. I would I would take the role on if I could really add value, if I could be of service to the organization, and um, you know it it was not something that I necessarily you know aspired to in my early years as a as a journalist. I didn't think I was going to do this with the eye of becoming a, a a publishing executive. But you know one thing that a lot of your your listeners have probably come to appreciate is that you know, in the media world these days and in the communications world, you know, if you are an editor-in-chief, you are a business person. You mm -hmm. are spending yep. a lot of your time not only nurturing journalists and thinking about stories and, you know, sort of developing um, relationships that will help benefit the journalism, but you're also thinking about, you know, how do we attract readers? How do we, um, you know, how do we create programs that align with the needs of our, our underwriters and our sponsors? It's it it's very much, a, you know, there's a lot of business development that goes into being an editor these days. So um, it was something of a natural transition. That's fabulous. Yeah, that's great. And, and uh, such a good point about the business, the business of media. And, you know, when I was working in magazines, many moons ago there I was so surprised I came from digital I come from AOL and I was so surprised that like it was like here's editorial and here's the publishing side and we will never speak to each other <laughs> like and we will <laughs> yeah. not worry about how I you know we'll not worry about how we get paid which is so good for obviously like journalistic ethics and everything but um for business I think that has truly evolved where of course you think about it and you know the whole the the even beyond not even talking about branded content and all that integration but just the business of it all so it's um it's an exciting path to see to see yours and and see that shift that you had that business training, even if it didn't feel like you were actively getting that right, like day to day yeah. on the job. So let's talk about the Matrix Awards. Congratulations on your New York Wiki Matrix Award. Thank you so much, Julie. As as I think I have mentioned to, uh, it's it's a little overwhelming. <laughs> um, and and you know the the import of it all. Um, as I said, it's it's also really humbling. Oh, well, it's very, very, very well deserved. I'm so excited for you. And, you know, we are celebrating women in our industry. Um, I want to know what 
does winning a matrix award mean to you? Um, well, as I said, overwhelming and humbling, yeah. you know, I, I remember in my early days at fortune, when I was a writer, um, getting invited to sit at a table for the matrix awards, because, you know, a lot of my role models in um, in the business were honored, you know, Martha Nelson, um, who used to be the editorial director of Time Inc, the old, former Time Inc, um, and also was editorial director at Yahoo. And she's, I'm so honored she's going to introduce me at the Matrix this year. But I remember going to the awards when when she was honored. Um, and so to now be recognized by an organization that, you know, recognized my heroes, um, when I was coming up, like I said, it's just, there's a lot of emotions, all the feels. Oh, it's so exciting. It's so exciting. And I love um, when I get to talk to the Matrix winners, it is usually, you know, like yourself, someone who has had mentors, who won the award, who has been there. And so it's so meaningful. I mean, especially seeing seeing the event, having been there, hearing the advice, it's like just so, so empowering. I can I can understand why it feels overwhelming, but you, you've got this, you've got this. Um, I'm talking to you over Zoom, but I can see that you're in the office. We talked a little bit about it before we started recording. Um, and, you know, in this world, we're just like navigating this rapidly shifting workplace, hybrid work. We're talking about how many days in the week and what the office is going to serve and all of that. Um, you've spoken about how leaders can adopt a next normal mentality rather than thinking about the new normal, which is sometimes what we talk about. So what does that mean? And, and kind of how do we shift our mindset to build a more resilient culture within our teams, adaptable culture? Um, would love to, to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, it's a big topic. And I, for me, it's a little bit like the old saw, you know, don't let a crisis go to waste. I think we have this incredible opportunity to think about the lessons we've learned over the last two and a half years and not just sort of bounce back to where we were. You know, I, I it's interesting because if you look up what the word resilient means, in science, resilience means that, you know, the energy is absorbed and then the object goes back to where it was. I feel like we have an opportunity to actually be better than where we were in 2020, right? Like the, the goal should not be, let's make this the new normal and just, you know, sort of try to get back to, to what was going on because, you know, let's be honest, like the workplace wasn't that great in early 2020. There were lots of flaws and cracks that have been exposed. And so, you know, you alluded to this earlier, Julie, you know, we, we saw in real time, often over Zoom calls, people's real lives. We saw the struggle with childcare. We saw the struggle with elder care. We saw the, the balancing act of people living in incredibly small apartments in New York City with like three other roommates and realized, you know, this is just not tenable. And, and you know, those were things that a lot of workplaces would not, would rather not have known about, right? Like there are a lot of workplaces where, you know, you come to work and you leave your personal life at the door and you leave your problems at the door. And if you need to take your kid to the doctor or your dog to the vet, 
you make up an excuse. You say, I, you know, I have to run out to the dentist or, Mm -hmm. you know, I've got an emergency, but you never would like expose your workplace to your personal life. And, you know, I think that's a huge mistake because, you know, how do we prevent another generation of women from leaving the workplace? We have conversations with them. We understand what their pain points are. You know, as you said earlier, we we may not be able to fix everything in, you know, a single meeting, but if we're listening to our workforces and we are trying to understand how people work and how they work best, you know, at least we are starting to engage in a discussion that will help us to get to solutions rather than just pretending that those things don't exist. Because if people don't feel like they can come to their employer and say, you know, my, my, my family, I have a relative who needs to go into hospice and I just, I need to be, I need to be there for them. You know, if you don't say that and you don't feel like you have permission to say that, you're just going to leave work. And, you know, I, as the employer, haven't had a chance to maybe help you with that situation. Um, So I think, you know, bringing more honesty into the workplace is not just like the new normal. I think that's got to be the next normal. That's just got to be table stakes for workplaces going forward. Um, And we've seen it in the conversation around mental health, which I think is, you know, finally starting to happen. Um, You know, most organizations historically, you know, you, you get more information about your vision plan than you do about your mental health benefits. You know, you get this big stack of information about, you know, VSP and things like that. But, you know, then you get this like flimsy brochure with an 800 number if you're in mental distress. Like that's got to change. Absolutely. It's so, you know, obviously we are all going through it and, and, but to take a couple minutes and hear you talk about it and focus it, I'm like, this is truly crazy. Cause what we're literally saying is just like, let humans be humans for the first time ever, like ever yeah. in the history of time. And that's something we've been talking about at my company is just like kindness, like treating people with kindness in term. And it sounds very obvious and simple, but like, you know, and we've all seen it, all of our, um, all of our um, emotional states have been very fragile over the last couple of years and everyone has their moments and, you know, you may, how it, um, how it appears, whether it feels like this person's really struggling at work and like, maybe it has nothing to do with their, with their work, right? Like, and so that is, we're just trying to like open, open this space and think about it in just a completely, completely different way. But you're so right. And I mean, thank goodness we're finally starting this conversation. So overdue, but, um, but at least, at least it's happening. Um, And and by the way, I don't want to, I don't want to paint all of, you know, corporate America and all all institutions with a broad brush. I mean, I think, you know, the reason we are having these conversations is because there are so many institutions that are surfacing these practices and you know again like you know McKinsey which is you know the most sort of blue chip consulting firm of them all and you know talk about a place that was you know very demanding on its employees for them to be putting out research that is helping you know their clients create more meaningful paths for their employees is is really telling right it's mm-hmm. it's not so i think you know look we all have a long way to go but i'm heartened too by the organizations i see out there that are you know trying to figure out better better pathways 
Absolutely. No, absolutely. And it's, yeah, you see it everywhere and you read about it everywhere. Like every kind of, we're all having to think about it. One of the, one of the things that came out of the pandemic, you know, we'll try to look for the silver linings. So hopefully some of these things will advance and change. I, I really want to talk about communication, your organization. I mean, you are a leader and you have to work with all, all types of people, business, editorial, across all the teams in your organization. I'd love to hear more about, um, you know, the tactics that you found for effective communication across audiences, uniting teams, helping, you know, get people moving towards the same goals. Uh, how, you know, what, what have you learned in your own experience? And this, this is a very big job with lots of people. So I'm sure there have been some lessons learned. Yeah, well, um, and, and I, again, certainly don't want to, um, represent that I've, I've got it all figured out. I think it is, it is a work in progress. And I think that's, that's the lesson I've learned, which is to acknowledge that, acknowledge when things are, you know, sort of not completely figured out or when we are sort of still working our way through, you know, different processes and, and, and different sort of plans. I mean, I think a good example is you're returning people to the office two days a week, which you know our organization is going to start doing um, after the Labor Day holiday. Um, you know, I I've been really I, I've tried to be fairly open in my communications that you know this is new for us. We are trying something new. We're going to see how it goes. Um, this is by no means the the policies and the guidelines that we're putting out today are you know they're a starting point, but they're going to evolve. Um, and if health conditions change, we're going to be responsive to those. If the needs of the business change, we're going to be responsive to those. But, you know, rather than trying to present every piece of communication as a fait accompli, sort of letting people know that, you know, of, 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 at, like, unnote, at, unlike any time in our, our world's history, we are going through a lot of change at once. And, you know, Nobody has all the answers. I certainly don't. And so I hope that my communication style and the the tone and tenor of the communications suggests that, you know, I'm learning as we go along too. And that, you know, please have some um forbearance. We we may we may need to change things. Right. You are you are leading in a very unique time, but I think that is such a great approach. And I'm sure everyone appreciates it in terms of just like, we think this is the right thing, but we'll see everything. <laughs> Let's see. I mean, everything's changing. None of us know. And I think to that point, like any, you know, organizations are like, here is the plan. No, you know, moving forward. It's like, we all know now there's like no plan. If I've learned anything in the last three years, it's like you can plan and plan and plan and plan, but you have to know that things it's out so much is out of our control for those of us control freaks. Um, this has been a, been a challenging time, but that's, I mean, I, I really like that, that it, the advice wrapped into that communication style of being open, honest, flexible. I think that is, that's incredible. And I'm sure very, very much appreciated. And I, you know, being a woman in a leadership role, I think it's so important for women to see other women um, in these leadership roles. And this is kind of a, a big question that you've talked a lot through this conversation and this, um, this episode, little, little bits of 
of advice, but any other advice you have for women who really want to get into leadership roles, skills that they should be building? Like, what have you really found were the skills you picked up along the way that now that you're at, you are the CEO are so valuable and really, really, you know, effective in terms of being successful in this role? Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, there, there's no single path to sort of leadership and success in, in the business world today. I mean, and I think that's what makes it so exciting is that you can have, you know, a range of experiences and, um, you know, because the world is so fast changing, I think smart organizations are really looking for that sort of diversity of experience and not sort of like that conventional, um, you know, sort of linear corporate path. Um, but for me, the things that I think really held me in good stead were, um, one was just a willingness to engage in conversations with different departments inside of my organization. You know, you alluded to this, Julie, it used to be sort of, you know, the, the phrase was church and state. Business was on this side, you know, journalists were on this side. And, you know, like I remember times when like the CEO wasn't even allowed on the same floor as the editorial folks for fear that, you know, you were mixing oil and water. And so, you know, while still, and as I said at the top, like I, I have a really strong ethics and value system that came out of being a reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Like we weren't even supposed to like take a glass of water from a company if we were covering <laughs> them. It's like, you know, you'd, you could walk in like perspiring and they'd offer you a glass of water. Like, no, my ethics don't allow me to, 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 to take a glass of water. From take anything from you. <laughs> right. I think it's softened, but you know, it's basically like, you know, I, I can't be bought. Right. Um, but within my own you know, organizations, I think I, I really did try to understand what the needs of the business side were, understand what the needs of consumer marketing were. Um, I had a great experience when I was at, you know, the former time incorporated, I was part of the founding group of the Asian American employees um, engagement and diversity group. Um, and it was a really cross departmental group of leaders from across the organization. And so not only did I get to meet journalists from People magazine, you know, again, fortune and people would never have that many opportunities to collaborate. But, you know, by sitting on this um, steering committee for the employee group, you know, I got to meet a bunch of other journalists, but I also got to really understand what the folks in consumer marketing did. I mean, I had no idea, but because these were my new sort of um, partners in our diversity initiative, you know, really got to understand how they ran their department, what their business was. And also just learned that, you know, the consumer marketing department at Time Inc. was like, those guys were disciplined. They were, they, they knew their business and they, they had mentoring programs within the department. Like they were just a well-oiled machine. And I just like, I, I learned so much from just operate, watching the way they operated, even within the confines of the diversity committee, because they brought all of those business skills to our, our little employee group. Um, so, you know, just a, a real curiosity for the for other parts of the business, I think were instrumental in helping me sort of then as an editor, think in a way that was very business minded and, you know, sort of now as a, a CEO, you know, all of those skills are, you know, all coming to a head. No, that's that, that is so 
so, so helpful. It's really, um, you know, it's hard to put into perspective, like where you're sitting in your career, like how to get to that leadership role, right? And like maybe the, the jump. So to hear any, to hear your path is so amazing and all these specific skills. So thank you so much for for sharing everything. And this is a you know career advice podcast. I need to ask you, what is the best piece or pieces of career advice you have ever, ever received? I think some of the best career advice I got, you know, really related to how to navigate the world of business journalism as a sort of fairly young um, woman of color, sound of working my way into spaces where I wasn't necessarily what a company would expect when I would show up um, to to do an interview. And and I had lots of, I remember I've mentioned her earlier in the podcast, Carol Loomis was, um, you know, a longtime senior writer and editor at large at Fortune. And I remember that she said whenever she got an assignment to cover a company, she would get, she would read the last five annual reports that that company would put out before she would even make the first phone call to set up an interview. And on the face of it for business journalists, that's great advice, by the way, like, you know, reading the annual reports is really interesting. And she was interested. She always said, don't get the 10 K's because that's just the version of it that, you know, they turn into the, the SEC, get the annual report so that you can see the shareholders letter and you can see the pictures and you can see how much money they're investing in the annual report. So that was great advice. But what I took away from that was be prepared. Yeah. Go into every interview and do your homework and show up with as much knowledge and wisdom as you can, which doesn't mean to be a know-it-all in the interview, but it really does diffuse imposter syndrome if you know your stuff. Great advice for life, for life. <laughs> was there ever, this is a toughie because this isn't always the case, but has there ever been any piece of career advice or advice you've gotten that you're just like, no one should take this advice? It's not good. <laughs> um, I'm sure there is. I can't think of it. You know, I mean, well, I, I've, in, in my career, I've, I've been willing to take some interesting risks that I'm not sure I would tell others to do, hmm. um, which is that I, I, in a couple of instances, I, I took lateral moves instead of promotions. So when I went from the Wall Street Journal to Fortune, um, the job title and the, the, the positioning felt to me almost a little bit like maybe even a little bit of a demotion or a lateral hmm. move, mm -hmm. but I was willing to do it because I wanted the opportunity and I had, I think I had a good sense of confidence in myself that, you know, I would, I would get to parity pretty quickly, but I'm not sure I would recommend that to other people. Um, and that's happened a couple of times in my career where I've sort of said, you know, this feels a little lateral, but I'm going to do it because I think that it'll work out in the long term. Um, but I'm not sure that's the best advice for every situation. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's interesting to think about too, but what made you decide? So in those situations, was it the publication? Like what did feel good about the, the jump to the other roles? It, it, it was the, it was the, the, the work. It was the yep. kind of work I would get to do. Um, and 
you know, again, this, this is truly like privilege, right? Like to be able to say, I was willing to do something professionally that felt like a risk because I wanted to improve a skill set. Like I, mm-hmm. I, even as I'm saying it, I know that that's, uh, that is really a privilege to be able to, to make that kind of, of, of personal choice. Um, but I was lucky to be able to do it. Um, and, you know, I, I, I did go into those decisions very clear-eyed. I knew, you know, I knew that it was a risk, but I also felt like, you know, I could, I, I could work my way back up to where I needed, where I wanted to be. And I, I think that's very good advice because just for every job move and, you know, we talk about the job ladder, does that exist anymore? And there, you know, it's more like a shoots, shoots, shoots and ladders. Um, yeah. We, but taking each job opportunity and looking at it like every element, because I do think we get very stuck. I mean, obviously money and your personal financial situation and all kinds of, you know, all kinds of things, but from a career growth perspective, like sometimes you do have to make the jump. Like I've seen that so many times in my career of like just being stuck and maybe it's just like that getting out of that position or go making that move. Um, so it's interesting to hear that you do, that you did make those moves, but also just thinking about it from a advice perspective of just like making sure that every opportunity you're looking at it, like, would this be better for your home life? Would it be better for, you know, if it's not, even if it's not just like, obviously growth, there could be reasons to, to take the jump. And clearly it's, you know, it's, it's helped your career. So um, the consideration is, is, seems, seems worth it when you can, you know, take that consideration. Been, it's been very, very, very interesting. I've, I've gleaned so much from this conversation, but something we like to do is I get to talk to these amazing executive women who are in these leadership positions and are doing the interviewing of jobs, but probably haven't had a job interview in a while or not a you know job interview like this. So we like to ask what we call our classically annoying interview questions. So those questions that you get asked in an interview that like you're like, oh, you could basically prepare for them because they maybe even don't have, have any meaning. So you can answer these how you really want to answer, or you can answer them how you think someone should answer them at an interview, even if it's not the most the most honest. Um, but the first one is the one we hear so many times. It is, what is your biggest weakness? Uh, I'm going to answer it honestly, which is, okay. <laughs> and it's multitasking. And again, I know that people think that that's a strength, but my attention span has gotten worse as I've gotten older. And I really, I think that it's comes from trying to do like six things at once. And, you know, we were all doing email while we should have been on zoom calls and concentrating during the pandemic. And I just, it's, it's like, it's terrible. I wish I could stop. I blame technology for sure. Right. Like that is, but I have also um, really been like tasking myself, I guess is the word to focus like on a call. I mean, clearly we're talking right now on this interview. I'm very focused, but exactly you're saying like on a meeting, <laughs> I don't have my email up even very rare, but like even at a meeting, unless it's something, you know, oftentimes so many of us are meetings that like kind of only apply to us. Right. So I want to be right. respectful of my own time of being like, okay, I should be here. But yes, like I'm, I mean, I, it's really hard. It is hard to focus. I hear you. Um, I don't know. I don't know the cure. Cause I, because I'm actively working on it. Um, It's it's almost impossible. And this is like, a. I feel like it's a generational thing and the next generation has almost worse. We'll see what happens in terms of like being introduced to all these 
technologies or maybe they'll go maybe they'll go the opposite direction um so this next interview question is if you could choose a different career what would it be um well as i mentioned earlier in the podcast i really did think i would become a, a book editor and um i think you know that's that's journalist adjacent so that's probably not a very good answer but i really um every time i read an interview with or listen to a podcast with a book editor i just think god that's such a great job um <laughs> But if I if I had to pick something that was very different, I would say um, an educator. I I think um, it would be really fun to be um, to be a, a college professor. I love that. I'm sure college professors who are listening to this are like, it's not fun at all. <laughs> but I do think it would be a very rewarding rewarding profession. Every job is a job, right? But know that yes, I feel like that could be in your future, right? That seems like something that could ha that could happen. Definitely, definitely. Not, not impossible. And then you know the companies are asking like these wacky questions to get you think outside the box, and so we like to ask some of those questions too. So this is from HubSpot, something they ask in their own interviews, and the question is: We finish this interview, and you step outside the office and find a lottery ticket that ends up winning ten million dollars. This might be related to the last question. What would you do? I wouldn't change a thing about my uh, life. I know that sounds like a terrible great. answer, but I would not. I mean, I would, I'd probably set up some sort of foundation to find a way to smartly give it away. Um, but it sounds so cheesy, right? But I like I, that kind of money wouldn't necessarily want, make me want to stop working or make me want to stop doing what I'm doing. Um, you know, probably put a little in the kids 529 <laughs> college savings. <laughs> but um, no, I guess, like I said, maybe figure out a, a way to to start a foundation so that we could, you know, help other people. I love that. That's so that's so beautiful. I know we're going to wrap on that note. It's so, so fabulous. Any um, are you on? Is, is there anywhere our listeners can find you any social media that you uh, publicly share on that you want people to follow follow you on? I'm on Twitter at, at Stephanie Mehta and also Instagram. Um, you'll find it's mostly Fast Company and Inc. content, um, which is something I'm super proud of and um, encourage everybody to check out those two publications. They're doing great work every day online. Fabulous. Well, thank you so much for your time. I had so much fun and so honored to have an hour of your time. Congratulations again on your Matrix Award. And um, thank you for being on our show. Thank you, Julie. Great questions. Thank you. You've been listening to Women Heard, presented by New York Women in Communications. I'm your host, Julie hockheiser Ilkovich. Thank you to the amazing team that works on this podcast. Chelsea Orcutt, Elizabeth Roberts, Chrisanne Grizay, Mandy Carr, Shania Anderson, and Alex Fetter, who wrote our original theme music. And thank you to everyone at New York Wiki for helping us and for supporting our show. For more information about Women Heard, go to nywiki.org slash podcast. That's nywici.org slash podcast. Thanks for listening.